We're actually uh, continuing in our study of Matthew. We're just jumping ahead a couple chapters. Okay, so if you'll turn in your, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be looking at the resurrection of Christ from a woman's perspective. So you ladies should be blessed this morning, and us men need to pay attention. (laughs) Matthew's gospel is not just a um, bunch of words thrown on a page. It's the very words of God, as all his word is. But I think they're laid out in a a specific plan, a specific purpose. And we've been studying, as we've been going through Matthew, coming to the conclusion in Matthew 24 about the coming of the Lord and all the devastation that is going to happen one day to this earth. And Matthew 28 is not simply some closing words that Jesus wanted to tell his disciples before he was out of here. Um, But I think they really culminate... The words in Matthew 28 culminate to an incredible climax of everything that the Apostle has written up to this point in 27 chapters. It reaches an apex, a climax. And as he's writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he begins to unveil this incredible message to us in chapter 28. As we were praying for Marvin and and others, um, for my brother, and you, you know, you can't you can't help but remember that death is a subject that people don't like to discuss. Amen. When's the last time you went around the coffee cooler and said, "Hey, let's let's talk about your funeral. What are you going to have?" You just don't discuss those kind of things. People in general shy away from the subject of death because death has a finality. To it that make most people uncomfortable. Very few people I know look forward to dying. Now, sure, as a Christian, I look forward to the afterlife, being with the Lord, not having this body, but having a new glorified body and being in heaven. I, I look forward to that. But I don't look forward to dying. Simply because dying usually takes place through a process. And it's the process that kind of fears us at times. Because death in itself has a biting sting and a sense of defeat in its very nature. Death is something we will all most likely face pending the Lord's return for His church. Some of us are nearer to death than others. But we're all on the same path. This body one day will give up its breath. The heart that has pumped so faithfully faithfully for us over the years will give out. Our brain activity will slowly just pass away. And then this body that we try to take care of, exercise, eat right, all those things, we try to prolong our life. One day, this body will be dead. Life will be gone from it. And it will be laid in the ground, as the scripture says, from the dust it came. And it will return. 
Yet here in the closing chapter of Matthew 24, or Matthew 28, we have a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have to understand that this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is also the central event in God's redemptive history. It's the central event. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Everything that we have, everything that we hope for, is dependent upon it being the truth. There would be no Christianity if there was no resurrection. We wouldn't be here. There'd be no reason to be here. Who wants to serve a dead Savior? See, the message of Scripture has always been a message of resurrection, a message of hope, a message that death is not the end for those who belong to God. See, for the believer, death has never been an end, but rather a doorway that leads to eternity with God. We see that through the Scriptures. Abraham willingly obeyed God's command to sacrifice his only son. Think about it. He was to take his only son up on an altar and sacrifice him. And he was willing to do that because he believed in a resurrection. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 19 that Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. So Abraham was willing to obey God because he thought, hey, the worst thing that can happen is I actually kill my son and God raises him back from the dead. (laughs) Throughout the Psalms we see this declared. Psalm 49, 15 specifically says, God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, or hell, for he will receive me. Isaiah even proclaimed in Isaiah 26, 19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. Through the book of Daniel, we see it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. He assures his people, although they die, one day they will awake to everlasting life. Hosea assures believers that the Lord will raise up all believers to live before him. He says this in Hosea, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we will live before him. Even that Old Testament righteous man, Job, who went through so much trouble in his life. He asked rhetorically, if a man dies, will he live again? And then he declares in Job 14, 14, All the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. He even foresaw the reality of the resurrection, proclaiming in Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 26, he said this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will, and at the last he will take his stand on earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. See, the resurrection is a reality. And it's a reality that leads to promised hope that God's people have throughout history. But that hope all comes down and is dependent upon one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because as Joe read earlier out of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians, if Christ hasn't risen, what do we have? We don't have anything. We're still in our sins. 
It's his resurrection that guarantees ours. We see that throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul declares the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made, what? Alive. See, this is why the resurrection of Christ throughout history has been one of the most denied, despised, mocked truths of the Bible. But I think only a fool tries to explain away the resurrection because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are man's only hope for salvation. They're man's only hope for eternal life. There's no other back door. There's no other side trail that you can get to God. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to come to the Father, you have to come through me. People throughout history believed in the resurrection. Even those who persecuted Christians. One instance... They investigated a mass burial of 11,000 heads. One of the islands in the western Pacific. And they discovered that further away from where all the heads were buried were the bodies. And they found out that back in 1637, the Japanese government, which controlled this area, ordered all Christians in the empire to be exterminated. And because they knew the Christians believed in the resurrection... They thought, you know what? We're going to cut their heads off and separate their bodies so that we're going to prevent this resurrection from even happening. <laughs> so even those that persecute Christians believed in it. The, 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 the bottom line is this, beloved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. And it's so foundational to Christianity. Let me say this, that no one who denies it is a true Christian. No one who denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ is assured heaven or the forgiveness of their sin. Without resurrection, there is no Christian faith. There is no salvation. There is no hope. Let's put it all back in the box and just go home and watch a baseball game. <laughs> and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And you're still in your sins. Your faith is worthless if there's no resurrection. We see even in the New Testament, as Peter preached the first message in Acts chapter 2. What did he preach on? He preached on the resurrection. He said, and God raised him up again after he charged his hearers with putting Jesus to death. He said, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Acts chapter 2, 23 and 24. And he continued that message to the Jews in Acts chapter 4 and also to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. We also see where Paul preached this same message of the resurrection over continually he preached it in the synagogue of Antioch 
In Acts chapter 13, he says, God raised Jesus from the dead. He whom God raised did not undergo decay. He proclaimed the, re- proclaimed the resurrection before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem in verses, uh, chapter 23, verse 6. He d- did it before the governor Felix in chapter 24, before the king Agrippa in chapter 26. See, the, the, the resurrection is a central and strongly emphasized theme, not only of the Old Testament, but even of the New Testament, specifically in Paul's epistles. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. Christ was buried and he's raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will present us with you. In Ephesians 1, 20. The Father raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. See, Paul longed to know Christ. He even said in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he said this, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of what? His resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Even Peter spoke of the resurrection in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. He spoke of a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That that ensures us an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Wouldn't it be nice to be guaranteed something in this world today? So many times, you know, you, you get these, you know, you, you get promises that just seem to fade away. doesn't matter if you're on the internet trying to do a Groupon thing or if you're, you know, getting, taking coupons to the store or whatever. I mean, inevitably, you know, you're looking at it, you give it to the person, and they're, oh, well, this doesn't cover that. Sorry, oh, this isn't, vo-. and, you know, you've already bought the product, and, they, you know, you don't want to put it back, so you end up paying full price for it because the silly little coupon that promised you a discount doesn't work. Our government's promising us hope and change. Our doctors promise us just a newer drug. This will help you. See, we we have this all over the map. Only to have our promises dashed. Well, Jesus Christ makes a promise. And he is not one to lie. Even John on the island of Patmos who wrote the book of Revelation. He beheld the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus said this, I am the first and the last, the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. See, Jesus Christ himself told us that he did die. He just didn't be placed, he wasn't just placed in a tomb and was asleep, and everybody thought he was dead. No, he literally died. And God raised him from the dead. And Jesus' own words say that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he does die. John eleven twenty five, and also in fourteen nineteen, he says, because I live, you shall live also. You know, there's a, there's a lot of denial going around today about the resurrection. Even the most pagan person, though, when you talk to him about Christ... You talk to him about the church and the doctrines, and even the most pagan person will say, yeah, isn't that the guy who's supposed to come back from the dead? I mean, they know what it's about. Unfortunately, they deny it. We live in a, in a, in a day and age where we rationalize everything, and we re- reject the resurrection. 
and anything supernatural for that matter, because we can't explain it scientifically. We can't explain it logically. I don't know about you, but I don't want a, do- a God who's logical. I don't want a God who's bound to science. I want a God who's able to do supernatural things beyond the constraints that we deal with on an everyday time period. There's a myriad of reasons why people reject the resurrection. Some are hostile toward the things of God. They hate God. They will not acknowledge that Christ was the Son of God. Other people are just ignorant of the fact that he claimed to rise from the dead, and he actually did. But see, my point is this, is that without the resurrection, we don't have anything. So when we come to our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 28, as I read this for you, you can follow along in your Bibles, verses 1 to 10, we're going to see a picture of the women who really cared for Jesus, who really loved Jesus deeply. They ministered to him on several occasions. And we're going to see their response emotionally to his resurrection. Look at what it says in verse 1, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And as he said, as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, took a hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee and there they will see me. Look at verse 1. The first thing we notice here is this emotion of compassion. It says, now, after the Sabbath. What day is the Sabbath on? Saturday. That's the day of the Sabbath. They didn't have days. They didn't have Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday in the Jewish culture back then. So what they would do is they would number the days after the Sabbath. So Sunday was the first day after the Sabbath. Monday, second, third, fourth, right up until you come back around to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the day of rest. That was the, the model that the Lord laid down even when he created us. He did it for six days and he rested. I'm glad that he rested. <laughs> Can you imagine if he didn't rest? Can you imagine? I mean, you think your life's hectic now. Can you imagine if you didn't have a right to have a day off? If your employer could say, no, you're working seven days a week, 24-7. Some of you may be in that trap. You need to get out. That's not healthy. It's not good for you. You need a day where you just kind of 
relax. Let your body recuperate. But he says, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came and looked into the grave. The actual time for a day was sundown of the previous evening till it began to dawn the following day. So here we're on the first day of the week, Sunday. Uh, John in his gospel says they came when it was still dark. So it's early in the morning. Now, the day before Jesus arose from the grave was, you have to understand this, the last divinely ordained Sabbath for his people. People say, well, why don't we worship on Saturday? If God rested on Saturday, the seventh day, and, and the Jews celebrate the Sabbath, why don't Christians celebrate the Sabbath? By the way, some Christians do. Seventh-day Adventists do. But I think they're sorely mistaken. Because when Christ rose from the, the dead on the following day, which would be Sunday, that's when the new covenant in Jesus Christ was ushered in. We're not held to all the rules and the regulations of the law in Christ. We're free to, to worship, we're free to eat, we're free to do whatever is honoring unto the Lord. It was because of the resurrection of Christ that as Christians we worship on Sunday mornings. So here we have Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, they had witnessed Joseph's and Nicodemus's wrapping of Jesus' body and the, the, the spices and prepared it for burial. They did all that, but they just wanted to come back. And they wanted to make sure that everything was okay. They weren't coming back to the grave to see if he rose from the dead. That's not why they were coming back. They thought he was dead. They believed he was dead. And so Matthew here focuses on only these two Marys. There's a couple other women that the other Gospels bring up, but for the most part, we have Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and she was the mother of James and Joseph, the wife of Clopas. So they thought that Jesus would still be in the grave. So they came back because they wanted to minister to him maybe before the fourth day came, because in the Jewish culture, four days, if, if a body was in the grave four days, it was just uh, the, the spirit in their culture, in their tradition, this isn't Bible, this is what they held to believe, uh, that the spirit of the dead person after the, the, the fourth day would leave because the body was so disfigured and so decayed and the spirit could no longer recognize it. That's what they believed. And maybe that's what reflected is here. They wanted to get back before that fourth day to, to maybe put a little more of the spices that they had on the body of the Savior. For whatever reason they, they, they came back, they did not have confidence that Jesus was resurrected. They had great love for him. They had great devotion for him. 
But what they lacked in their faith, they compensated for in their loving compassion. They wanted to once again just minister to this dead body of the Savior. Because that's what they thought they were going to find. Second emotion they have here is not just compassion, but they also have terror. Look at what happens in verse 2. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. And now this was the second supernaturally caused earthquake in a matter of days here, remember. There was an earthquake with the death of Christ and then also the burial. The first one occurred at his death. The second one here at the, the, the grave. So God caused this, this earthquake by an angel. So within three days, he caused two great earthquakes outside of Jerusalem. And it all had to deal with the death and burial of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us here that the earthquake occurred when an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. I mean, you think Jesus Christ is powerful. He is. But angels are also powerful. And for whatever reason, this this angel caused the earth around the grave to tremble violently. And it says here that he rolled away the stone and he sat upon it. Now remember, this is a secured, sealed grave because they, they knew what Jesus taught about the resurrection. The Romans did. And the government authorities did. The Jews did. And they thought, hey, we don't want anybody tampering with this grave and possibly coming back and, and stealing the body and then saying, oh, look, he rose from the dead. They didn't want that to happen. So this grave was guarded by soldiers. And basically their life was on the line. It was a seal upon that stone that said no one can go in here. And if someone breaks this seal, basically it's your guy's head. So they took their job very seriously because their life was on the line. But here we see an angel coming from heaven, an earthquake. He moves the stone and then he just sits there. And some people, you know, we, we've all seen the little the, the Easter uh, celebrations in churches, even stories and the kids and the angel comes and he, he, he moves the, the stone away, and then the Savior comes out. So the thinking is, well, Jesus needed an angel to come from heaven to move this big stone so that he could come out. But that's not what it says. <laughs> that's not what happened. Think about it. If Jesus had the power to raise himself from the dead, I don't think he's going to worry about a little stone covering, covering up the opening to his grave. He certainly had the relatively minor power required to escape the sealed grave. And when we see him in his post-resurrection experiences, we see see experiences where he walks right through walls. So there's something about the resurrected body, and we're all going to get one if we know Jesus Christ, that allows us to do those kind of things, and yet still be recognizable. That, that's kind of neat to look forward to that. But he did not move the stone to allow Jesus to come out, beloved. The angel moved the stone to let the women and the apostles in. So that they could see, hey, he's not here. He's gone. Before the angel appeared, Mary Magdalene tells us in John chapter 20, another account in another gospel... She got there before the angel appeared. And she ran 
And she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved. And here's what she said. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they have laid him. So some, somehow she missed the angel's announcement. And she was already off telling everybody, well, somebody stole the body. He's gone. Meanwhile, the angel manifested himself back at the tomb to those who were near the tomb. In his appearance, it says, look at it, was like lightning. Remember in the Old Testament when Moses went up to the mountain and he was near the presence of God and he came back and it says that his face shone from the glory of God? Well, that's probably what was going on with this angel. Some of the glory of God rubbed off on this angel and it says that he appeared like lightning. The Shekinah glory of the Lord. And it says his garment was as white as snow. That suggests God's purity. This angel was holy. He was pure. He wasn't a demon. He was a real angel, a pure angel. And you see the terror of the guards. Verse 4 says, "And And for fear of him, the guards trembled. Fear of who? The angel. And became like dead men. They shook. They were literally shaking in their boots, you might say. It says they became like dead men. Have you ever been so scared at something you just can't move? You're just frozen? I remember one time my brother Paul, we were in the, the badlands of South Dakota and certain areas you can go out and you can walk right out to the, this precipice and you can look down and you see this big canyon. It's beautiful. But I mean, there's, there's literally nothing there. I mean, if you wanted to, you could kill yourself, jump on. My brother, and I was like maybe 12, not real fond of heights. And they're, come on out. No, that's all right. Ah, you're going to come out here. So he just picked me up. And literally carried me out there. And he's holding me over this. I was crying. I was freaking out. He said, see, it's not so bad. And then he pulled back a little bit and he set me there. I, just, I couldn't move. And I remember just dropping down to all fours and crawling back. <laughs> crying. And oh, I was miserable. I was just paralyzed. That's how these guards felt. They just didn't know what happened. They thought, man, not only were they in fear for the, the angel and all the earthquake and everything, but they were in fear for their own lives. These were the guys that were given charge to make sure that nobody tampers with this grave. But look at what the, the angel says. But the angel said to the women, some translations say the angel answered. The women didn't ask a question, so it's kind of a poor translation. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I mean, the soldiers had good reason to be afraid, right? I mean, they were, they were the enemy. They were the ones that were keeping, you know, watch over this grave. They were the ones that, that crucified him. They were on that team. But the angel was very caring, and he quickly turns to the women and says, Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. He explained to them. Because the women were probably just as terrified as the soldiers at this point. He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. See, the angel knew why the women came. 
And then the angel says in verse 6, He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. That, that phrase there, he has risen, in the Greek original language, it's translated from an aorist passive. And it can be rendered this way, has been raised. Jesus has been raised. Jesus himself had the power to give up his life and to take it up. That's what John 10, 18 says. But scripture makes it very clear that he was also raised by the power of who? The Father? It tells us that in various places. Romans 6, 4, Galatians 1, 1, 1 Peter 1, 3. And also the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11. And so the entire Trinity, the whole Godhead, participated here in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this angel gently reminds the women that were there that this Jesus' resurrection, it shouldn't surprise him because he he said he was going to do this. Just as he said, ladies. Remember, he said he was going to do this. Over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 8, Luke reports this, Then they remembered his words. So then, the terror kind of turned into an excitement. Next, the angel invited the woman to come and see the place where he lay. Make sure it's empty. Go ahead, check it out. The angel joined them in the tomb. And he said basically the same thing. It tells us in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verse 6. Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who has been crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. I mean, perhaps the message was repeated because the women just found this hard to believe. And then when Peter and John entered the tomb a little while later, John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7 tells us, They beheld the linen wrappings lying there. See, Jesus was prepared for burial. He was bound up like a mummy. But when he was raised from the dead, he had a glorified body. And like I said, glorified bodies, material doesn't matter to them. So he just got up from where he was laying down that body, and those those linens just laid there. So the disciples looked in there, and they saw that. They saw the face cloth, which was on his head, which rolled up by itself. And these were the ones that Joseph and Nicodemus had laid the body to rest in. And while the women were in the tomb, another angel joined the first. It tells us in, Luke, in John chapter 20, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus was laying. So you have two angels in there with these people. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, just, just the idea that he's not there would, would freak you out, probably. But then you got angels, you got earthquake, you got all the stuff going on. One commentator says those two angels really represent the, the two golden cherubim who were on either side of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. So here you have a perfect picture. He had just become a truly the mercy seat for a sinful mankind. And then the angels tells us in Luke that, why do you seek the living among the dead? They're probably looking around this, this tomb going, where's he at? 
Why do, you, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day he would rise again? And see, for a third time, the women were told this glorious truth of Jesus' resurrection. And by this time, it's probably starting to soak in. And so one of the angels says, hey, you need to go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And at that point, the women's fascination quickly turns into what we call proclamation. They were to go and they were to tell the world of the risen Christ, specifically the disciples. And the, and the angel said, do it quickly, do it quickly. I mean, think about it. All the disciples at, at Christ's crucifixion, where were they at? They ran, right? They went and hid themselves, fearing they were going to be next. And here you see the compassion of the Lord in this angel telling these women, go quickly and tell the disciples. You know, if I was Jesus, I would let them kind of wander a little, maybe a couple days, <laughs> you know. Let them sit in their stew and try to figure this thing out. You know, after all, they deserted him. But he doesn't do that. That's not the kind of God we serve. doesn't take advantage of us in that way. He didn't rebuke them for their lack of faith or for their cowardice, but he sent them messengers with the gracious word of hope and comfort. What a wonderful God we serve. You may be asking, why do you think that the women got to see this first? I mean, you wonder why, why God allowed these, these women rather than the disciples. I mean, the disciples were kind of like his gang. I mean, they were the, the guys that did all the ministry with him and everything, and yet they're nowhere to be found. And there's a lot of different theories on that. Why would Jesus allow them to be there at the tomb when the angel came and all that? One commentator says, well, it's because God chooses the weak and to confound the strong. And others suggest that women were rewarded for their faithful service to the Lord. Another holds that death came by a woman in the garden. So new life was first announced to a woman in the garden, you know. Others say that it was because the deepest sorrow deserves the deepest joy. Or that the supreme love deserves the supreme privilege. I mean, you can, you can go down any road you want. But I think scripture is pretty simple. I think it says what it says. It doesn't say any of that. It simply seems obvious that the woman were the first to hear this angel, this angelic announcement that he's risen of the resurrection, simply because, you know what? They were there. They were there. I mean, had the disciples been there, they would have heard it too. They would have heard the good news directly from the angel rather than indirectly through this, the, the women that went and told them. And I think there's a parallel here to the reality of this simple truth. The closer a believer stays to the Lord and to his work, the more he is going to witness and he's going to experience the Lord's power. I think that's the bottom line here. Those who are... There, when the Lord's people gather, 
for worship and for prayer, they're going to be blessed. Those who are there when his word is being taught, they're going to be blessed. Those who are there when the lost are being lost, one to Christ. Those who are there when others are being served in his name. Those who have that regular time and they're there in those private times of prayer. See, these are the folks that are most often going to experience firsthand the work of God. So if you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, you know, God hasn't really done much in my life lately. I wonder why. Are you where God wants you to be? The angel's further instruction to the woman was to tell the disciples, he is going before you into Galilee, and you're going to see him there. And that was where they received the great commission. It's kind of the rallying point. I mean, they saw the risen Lord before that point, but he said, hey, don't forget, we got a meeting in Galilee. So you see these emotions coming out, compassion, terror, but you also see joy. Look at verse 8. They departed quickly from the tomb with what? Fear and great joy. Seems like a hard to have those two things together. And they ran to report to his disciples. See, obediently, they responded to the angel's command. They didn't hang around the grave and say, well, this is really cool. We want to talk to this angel some more. No, they did what the angel told them to do. They departed quickly from the tomb. And obviously, if you're confronted with an angel, there's going to be some remnant of fear that you possess. But within their fear was also the idea that, you know what? Our Savior is risen. We came to anoint a dead body. The dead body's not there. The angel told us that he's risen, just as he said. And they're beginning to put the pictures of the puzzle together. And so there was great joy there. And it wasn't until Mary Magdalene met Jesus herself. She recognized him and shouted, Rabboni. See, then she, she reported her experience to the disciples. And they didn't even believe her. The disciples that were with Jesus these three and three plus years, they, they didn't even believe that he rose from the dead. Yeah, all right, Mary. What have you been drinking, Mary? Yeah, sure. Yeah, he rose from the dead, all right. You can read about their disbelief. And you know what? To me, that's evidence. That clearly proves that they had no intention of stealing his body because they never thought he would be raised from the dead. They didn't even give him a second thought. As the chief priests and the Pharisees feared, they didn't even believe it. But there was a joy there in these women's heart. And then also you see worship. In verse 9 it says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. That, that word greeted them, is, it's, it's a common greeting. It's basically, hello, how you doing? Nice to see you. Good morning. I mean, this is the risen Savior talking to you, okay? That's how he greeted them. Simply. It wasn't some big fanfare. It was just an ordinary greeting of the marketplace. Casual. Almost mundane. Might even seem inappropriate in our eyes. Yet the glorified Christ, who had just finished conquering sin and death, was able to greet those faithful women with warm, informal, tender greeting. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 tells this about our Lord. It says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What's he saying is, you know what, Jesus gets it. Why do you think he came down on this earth and he lived 30-some years in a human body? So that when you say, oh, you know what, man, my body's aching today. He doesn't have to look at you and go, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. No, he can look at you and say, I know exactly what you're talking about. I ached. I was beaten beyond recognition. I mean, my, my human body was <laughs> pretty bad shape. says immediately they they recognized him verse 9 took hold of his feet and they worshiped him see they 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 now understood that this was truly the messiah this was truly the son of god who was risen from the dead we saw him die we saw him be beaten we saw him be crucified and yet he lives And they did what every person, hear this, every person, unbeliever as well as believer, they did the same thing that every person will do one day. Philippians 2, chapter 20, chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Philippians 2, 10 to 11 says that when he comes again, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Of God the Father. See, at last, the full reality of this resurrection truth was solidified in their minds, in their hearts. They heard the angels' proclamation of the resurrection. They'd seen the empty tomb. They'd seen the risen Lord. They even touched his glorified body. And now they couldn't do anything. All they could do is fall down and adore him and worship him. In verse 10, he says to them, don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren. Leave for Galilee and they're going to see me there. Message of hope. Don't be afraid. I mean, that's the kind of God we serve. It's the kind of God that comes along. He doesn't come along with a big club and just going, oh, you're not feeling good. Or I'm going I'm to hammer you now. No, he comes in compassion. He comes in forgiveness. He comes in with, a, with a desire to, to reach out to you. He wants to know you. See, our problem is that somehow we think that we get to know God through our religion. I'd be bold enough to say as religion has never led anybody to God. You might say, what do you mean? See, religion is basically this, beloved. Religion is is your attempt to reach out to God. It's your attempt to kind of elevate yourself up to the level of God. God is holy. He's perfect. He's pure. He's righteous. And in our humanity, we want to make ourselves that way. And so we think somehow we get involved in, quote, religion... You might say, well, what do you think Christianity is? Christianity is a religion. I would, I would beg to differ with you. I'd say, no, it's not. 
The difference between Christianity and religion is simply this. It boils down to two words. If you ask me to give you a definition of any religion, any world religion, it's based on one word, two letters, do, D-O. Any world religion, look them up in the books. They'll tell you what you need to do. If you do this, if you join our thing, if we do this, if you keep these, if you do this, and it's all based on what you do, on your performance, and then eventually maybe if you do enough, you'll earn your way up the ladder. But you never quite get there because they've got to keep you, keep you kind of hooked in. <laughs> and you say, well, what's the difference between Christianity? Christianity is, is surmised in, in one word, four-letter word. D-O-N-E, what was done on your behalf. Are you trusting in what you do? Because if you are, you're lost in your sin. The Bible says very clearly that even your good works, what you do, you feed the poor, you help the homeless, you know, you, you help out, reach out to older people, whatever you might do. The Bible considers those, God considers those as filthy rags before a holy God. When they're done with the intent of earning your, your goodness before God. No, Christianity is all about what was done for us on Calvary. See, that's why Jesus had to come and die. Because we couldn't do that. You mean if I died on a cross and I'd save myself? No, you wouldn't because you're not perfect. We've all sinned. The Bible says we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. So are you trusting in what you do? Are you trusting in what is done on your behalf? Because that's the only thing that will save you. It's the work of Christ. Very quickly, just these, from the resurrection comes some incredible principles and truths that we can grab a hold of. The basic truth of the resurrection shows us this. First of all, it gives evidence that the word of God is totally true and reliable. Because Jesus rose from the dead precisely when and in the way that he had predicted. And you can read that in Matthew 12, 40, 16, 21, 17, 9, on and on. You read through the Gospels, you'll see Jesus over and over again said, this is how it's going to go down, guys. And the disciples were always saying, no, 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 no. We don't want you to die. That's not in our plan. But it happened precisely how he said. Secondly, the resurrection means that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, just as he claimed to be, by the way, and that he has power over life and death. The mere fact that Jesus came out of that grave, the mere fact that we don't go visit a headstone somewhere and say, yep, here's where Jesus lays. You can go see Buddhas. You can go see past popes. You can go see all these other people who claim almost deity. You can go visit their grave. Jesus doesn't have one. Because he had power over life and death. Third, it proves that salvation is complete. Because on that cross, when Jesus died and he was done on the cross, as his arms were stretched out and he was bleeding and beaten, the last words he said is what? It is finished. What does that mean? It's done. It's over. There's no more suffering that has to take place on our behalf to earn our salvation. 
If you're trusting in anything other than the the work of Christ on the cross for your salvation, you're lost. You're lost. You're trusting in something that doesn't exist because it will not save you. Jesus conquered sin and death and hell and he rose victorious on the third day. It also proves that the church has been established. Jesus declared, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or gates of hell will not overcome it. His resurrection from the dead proves that death itself could not prevent Christ from establishing his church. It also proves that judgment is coming. John 5.22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. We've been looking at that in Matthew 24. Some of the things that are going to be happening, taking place here on earth as God returns and judges this, this vile, wicked world we live in. The question is, are you ready? The resurrection also proves, lastly, that heaven is waiting. Heaven is waiting. See, Jesus promised, in my house, there are many dwelling places. And if it's not so, I wouldn't have told you so. And I go and I prepare a place for you. He said that in John 14, too. See, because Christ is alive by the resurrection, we, as believers, have the assurance that he is now preparing a place, a heavenly dwelling for them. That's what I told my brother a couple minutes ago when I talked to him on the phone. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to my new body. I'm looking forward to being with the Lord, to being in his presence. It's for that reason that in the coming weeks, for two, three weeks, we're just going to do a short series on the glories of heaven. What do we have to look forward to in heaven? Is it going to be all that it's cracked up to be? I'm sure it will be and more. But my question to you this morning is, what are you going to do with the risen Savior? Because he is risen, beloved. He is truly risen indeed. The question is, what are you going to do with him? I'm going to close in prayer and we're going to watch a short video and then we'll close with a song. But I just want to ask you this morning, if you haven't put your faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would understand that he's calling your name this morning. This isn't a game. This isn't fairy tales. This is real life. You look at the world around you All you have to do is pick up the newspaper and you begin to understand very quickly that the wheels are falling off the cart. Economically, environmentally, politically, emotionally. We see all sorts of wrong. There's only one way out of that. And it's through the Lord, the Son of God, The Lord Jesus Christ, he came, he died for you. He gave up his life for yours. And he desires that you come to him and you turn away from your sin. You turn away from your religion, what you're doing. And you turn to the cross, understanding that he has done everything that needed 
to be done on your behalf. And you put your faith, your trust in Christ. You cry out to him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Show me this Jesus that this man talks about. I need to be saved. You yield your life to him. He'll save you when it comes from a sincere heart. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray that you would just bless this message to our hearts. Lord, I don't know where the people are at. I don't know what they're going through, but you do. And Father, I pray that you would do your work as only you can. Pray you'd bless us as we watch a short video together and then close with a song. In Jesus' name, amen.